I have a confession. We've been here all this time talking about all these things. And I've come to realize something. All this, all those tough questions, all this cloak and dagger stuff, it's all your fault. Yeah, it's all on you. None of this would be necessary if you just show up a little more often. I'm not asking for a miracle for every person here. But why can't you just show us you're real once in a while? So we're not left feeling like we're on our own here. Is that too much to ask? Because until you do, there's no way you're getting off the hot seat. The good news is that's the last time we're going to see him. <laughs> I, I, I want to read to you a portion of a letter that Ed wrote to his son, Greg. Ed, you need to understand, is an atheist. And Greg is somebody who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And here's what Ed writes. What's so great about faith that he, God, desires it above an obvious revelation of himself? And when he does reveal himself, supposedly in the Bible, he does in so many blankety-blank bizarre things that no one who wasn't there to see it can be expected to believe it. Yet salvation supposedly hangs on this. Why do people have to believe things and accept stories that they'd never accept under ordinary circumstances in order to be saved? This isn't exactly fair. So if I want to avoid hell, I presumably have to believe that a snake talked to Eve, that a virgin got pregnant from God, that a whale swallowed a prophet, that the Red Sea was parted, and all sorts of other crazy things. Well, if God wants me so bad, Greg, why does he make believing in him so blankety-blank impossible? It seems to me that an all-powerful God could do a much better job of convincing people of his existence than an evangelist ever does, or even better than all of your arguments do. Man, just write it across the sky, nice and big. Say, here's your proof, Ed. Believe in me or go to hell. Sincerely, the Almighty. You wouldn't have to spend an afternoon arguing history to me. I'd be on my knees. So why doesn't God do that? Why doesn't God do the big thing? Why doesn't he do something so large, so immense, that it would help us run from the hot seat straight to his throne? I mean, just the fact that we've had a series called The Hot Seat, Asking God the Tough Questions, tells us that we do have questions because God has, has not totally convinced us. We have doubts. And so you may still have questions, and that's one of the ground rules we had in this series, is that you're going to have questions and maybe more questions when we're done, and that's okay. Have those questions. In fact, I'm going to tell you now that if you still have more questions and, and you want me to know about them, I want to give you our, our email address. We're going to put it on the screen for you. And just send that to me so that I can look at those and find an appropriate time to deal with that. Not only will you have questions... I'm encouraging you to disagree with each other. I, I, I told you that one of the ground rules is you can disagree with me, but as you do, be sure that it's not just based upon your emotion, upon your feeling, or about what someone told you. Research it and find the answers. And then finally, 
I've decided that my answers are going to be based on the Holy Scriptures. And you say, but that's one of the questions I have. Why the Scriptures? I'm going to refer you back to the fourth sermon we did in this series. And you can download it or stop by our media desk, pick that information up. It'll tell you why I believe that. So today, let me ask this question. How many die-hard Steelers fans do we have in this place? Yeah. <laughs> How many die-hard Brown fans do we have today? How many die-hard Buffalo fans? <laughs> that was T.O. How many don't really care? <laughs> All right, I want to talk to you, you Steeler and Browns fans. Actually, I want to talk to you Browns fans, especially today. Somebody just said, we believe in miracles. I think the Red Sea is going to part first. <laughs> so, so could I, could I convince you today, because I know you guys are, are Browns fans, could I convince you today, especially today, to change your allegiance? Why? Why? You bleed brown and orange. You see... No matter what facts you give people, if their worldview is secure, you're not going to change them with anything. And what I want to tell you today is changing a worldview is never easy. There are still people who believe the Holocaust never happened. There are people who believe that we never put a man on the moon. There are people who believe the United States government was responsible for the 9-11 attacks bringing down the towers and hitting the Pentagon. There are people who believe that Elvis is still pumping gas outside of Memphis at a gas station. And Jimmy Hoffa's changing the oil. That's what they believe. And no matter what facts you give them, you're not going to change their worldview. Several years back, before I, we moved here, I was at a meeting where a copy, uh, a copy machine salesman was demonstrating a new copy machine. And while he was demonstrating all the features, the machine jammed. My boss said, how often does the machine jam? And I kid you not, this was his response. Oh, sir, it never jams. My boss says it's jamming right now. He says, sir, this machine never jams. He said, but look, it's jamming. He said, but sir, it never jams. But don't you see it's jamming? Sir, it never jams. He would never admit it jammed. We didn't buy the machine. But his worldview made no room for that exception. He was having what we call cognitive dissonance. That is when the mind and many times even the heart are torn in two directions. You know what you believe, but then you see something that runs contrary and you can't figure out what to do about it because it goes against your worldview. So this guy was sent as a prophet from God when there had been no prophets for 400 years. He shows up to confront the evils of his society. John the Baptist is there 
to declare there's evil in the society and these folks need to repent and also that he is preparing the way for the Messiah, the Son of God, who will come. One day he is baptizing people who have repented of their sins and Jesus of Nazareth walks by and his prophecy antenna starts to sound off an alarm and he says, that man right there, behold the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the way of the sin of the world. He's saying, this is the Messiah. He's here right now. The kingdom of God has come right now. He's here. Now the problem he's about to face is this, cognitive dissonance. Because even prophets know something from God, but they don't know everything. So in his mind, when the kingdom of God arrives through the Messiah, then all the injustice in the world will be removed, all the evil will be gone, and the Roman Empire will be swept away. And in that sense, he confronts the governor of his region for the relationship he has with his new wife, which happened to be the wife of his brother, whom he had an affair with, and happens to be his niece. And as a result of that, they throw him in prison. Cognitive dissonance. He knows that the kingdom is supposed to be released, and these Roman rulers removed, and justice returns to this earth, and yet he's in jail unjustly. He mulls this over for about a year and then he sends some of his friends to talk to Jesus and find out what the problem is because this is not matching up with what he thought it should be. Matthew wrote these words. Matthew 11, verse 2. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus is saying, you are looking for something that I am not doing, and I'm telling you that you know some things, but you don't know everything. And this is what he did know. He knew what the prophet Isaiah had said in Isaiah 61 when he prophesied the coming of this Messiah. And he said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vengeance of our God. Jesus is saying the grace is here. You can see it. The blind see, the lame walk. Leprosy is cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news that Jesus is Lord is preached. And, and John is thinking, well, if the good news is Jesus is Lord, what am I doing in this mess? See, the grace is here. But the justice you want is still coming. But don't fall away or be quick to say, I don't need to follow you anymore. We do that. We look at injustice. I I look at 150 people killed last week in Pakistan by suicide bombers. And I say, where's the justice in that? And and it's so far away, but but, but if a a bomb would have gone off at the mall, and those were your neighbors, what would you say? God, what are you doing? Even for for neighbors, you had prayed their protection and suddenly they are destroyed in that blast. I I see a girl who is now 29 who at age 11 is kidnapped and taken into a backyard and lives there 
for those 18 years. Becoming a sex slave to the man who kidnapped her and even births two children who, they, who she then tells those girls that her, she's their sister. And not until she's released do they understand actually that that's their mom. And you say, God, how can that happen? And people even got close enough to discover her, but they did not. Where's the justice in that? Then you read in the paper that one out of four people in Erie are living below the level of poverty. And you say, where's the justice in that? And I want to say, God, if you would, if you would just, just come to the whole world and, and just have a really big head in the sky... And let it just be surrounded with flames and angels with swords. And if you would just speak with a voice that would shake the earth and just say to those bad people, Stop it! Or I'll smush you! Don't you think that would get attention? So what's the deal, God? Whether is it that you don't care or you can't live up to your press releases? Why don't you do something? And Jesus says, I'm going to warn you, don't be scandalizo is the word that he used. What he said, don't fall away. It's where we get the word scandal. The word actually is a, is, is a, is a word picture. It's, it, it would be demonstrated by the day that, that I went out into my yard at our former house to turn off the water. We were watering the yard. It was one of those summers where it didn't rain every day. And so I went out, and, and there's a decorative stone near the hose bib, and I went out on my bare feet. I got close to the rock, and, and as I went around to get to the hose bib, I caught the rock with my, the right side of, of my right foot. I stubbed it on the rock and took my little toe and bent it all the way out. It was broken. I rejoiced. said, God, where is the justice in this? And so from that point on, I avoided the rock and actually wore protective covering over my feet when I went out. The word scandalizo means to hit an object that hurts you or offends you to the place that you avoid it. And in this case, when you're talking with people, that you lose your faith in them because you think they hurt you. They offended you. And so we say to God, God, here's how you're supposed to act. And you have not acted. There's this, this, this dissonance. And therefore, if you don't match to what we say you should be, then we're not going to put our faith in you. So come on, God, do something really big. Well, here's the problem with that. Big events rarely create a lasting transformation. Jesus had already performed an amazing amount of messianic signs and the crowds grew larger and all of them only wanted this one thing, do more miracles. And here's how Jesus responded to that. Luke 11, verse 29. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Okay, what's the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah is Jonah. Jonah showed up 
in Jonah's skin, only it was a little bit more bleached because of the acid from the whale. Jonah shows up in his Jonahness and, and tells him what God wants in his Jonah speech and the entire wicked, intensely wicked city. You might say that'd be like San Francisco today. They all repented and turned to God by this one man preaching. And here comes Jesus, who they say taught like no other man, who had authority like no other man, who performs miracles, and they say to him, we don't want to know about you, just do some more miracles. Let's see, we run into a problem. Miracles without relationship fade. I've told you that there are times that Pam and I were in places where either we weren't getting paid or we're getting paid not very much and we weren't making ends meet and planning a church. And, and I told you that there are some miraculous things that happened. And I can tell you that there are those moments that we received money in the mail from anonymous sources. But I cannot tell you the exact details because it's faded. I know it happened, but it's faded. But I can tell you the day that Mel and Joy and their three kids showed up after going to, to Sam's Club and each of them getting one of those big carts and going through and picking out food and anything else they thought we'd want. And they filled up those five carts, put them in their big Escalade and came over to our house, kicked us out of the kitchen and stocked our kitchen full. I can tell you about that because there was a face connected to it. There was a relationship of love established in that process. And when I think of them, I can remember that thing to detail. When you have a miracle, God has intended that there be a relationship established. Miracles with a, with a face leave a force. Because it's not about the act, it's about the love. Israel had witnessed plagues in Egypt. They had seen the Red Sea parted. And when they show up at Mount Sinai, God, for the first time ever, says, I want to speak to a group of people. He'd only spoken to individuals. I want to speak to this entire nation. And do you know what they said? They said, no, thank you. You scare us. So you go ahead and just keep doing the things you're doing. We don't want personal contact. To refuse God's personal presence is to eventually forget the evidence of God's presence. So what do they do when Moses goes up to meet with God on their behalf for 40 days? Toward the end of the 40 days, they forget God and they build a golden calf and they say, hey, this is the guy who brought us out of Egypt. The sign minus a face becomes a dream. But I can tell you the relationship that we still have with Mel and Joy is still intensely there and we remember the things they do not because it was such a wonderful answer but because it came from their hearts. It was established in a relationship. Miracles must be filtered through relationship if we're to understand what they were for. The problem today and in the past is this, that divine events are filtered by evil intent. Look, if Satan can convince two perfectly formed people in an uncontaminated world, no evil, perfectly connected to their creator, 
If he can convince them that God is holding out and they should go do their own thing, how much easier is it for him to do that to us in a world that is so contaminated with evil? Paul the Apostle states that to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 4. He says that God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus had already healed a deaf man. He had taken 5,000 families and fed them with a few loaves and fishes and then, weeks later, did it again with 4,000. He'd gone by a pool where a guy laid and waited for the water to be moved by an angel and the first one in gets healed and Jesus walks by and says, would you like to be healed? He said, i got nobody to put me in and Jesus said, you don't need that. Get up and walk and he does. A woman follows Jesus because she's been hemorrhaging for years and, and the bleeding won't stop and she just is convinced that if she could just touch the cloak that he's wearing that she would be healed and she does and she's healed. Jesus sees a mother grieving because her daughter has died and Jesus says, hey, little girl, get up, and she lives. Now, don't you think that if you see all of that, you would be convinced? Yet the religious leaders of that day, according to John, said this in John eight forty eight, The Jews answered him and said, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? You are the wrong type of person and you have the wrong spirit because it doesn't match our matrix. It does not match the pattern we've established. It is not our worldview. And if it doesn't match our worldview, it can't be God. It can't be right. So we'll find reasons not to believe you. We do that. And let me ask you this question. What do we hope for when we, when we have those big events? What, what, what if God came through here and did a tremendous healing miracle for weeks? What do we hope is going to happen? Those big events do change some people's lives, but for most of us, they best only scare us or wow us temporarily. Those events can't force me to love him, and that's what he said this whole deal is about. Otherwise, it becomes robotic. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus told his followers, his boys, to go out and do those big things, he said, go do those things, but it must be permeated with this one thing. You must always say and always preach and always make them aware that the kingdom of God is here right now. The kingdom of God is here right now. In fact, those signs should, should point to that, but not be standing by themselves. The kingdom of God is here. The miracles must point to the kingdom of God is here. If you don't have the kingdom of God is here, you'll just have miracles and you will continually crave those miracles, those big events. I see it happen in the church. I I asked somebody this morning and I appreciated their answer, but, but then I think we should ask the question that follows that. I said, how are you today? And they said, blessed. It's a good answer. But why do you feel blessed? What's the reason behind that? Anybody ever hear anybody say that? Yeah, blessed. So if that means that I'm blessed because everything that I think I need, God has given me, okay. But what about the person who doesn't feel like God has given them everything they need? When I ask them, how do you feel? Do they need to say, cursed? I'm cursed. Thanks for asking. Try that sometimes. How are you, cursed? Thanks. Bye-bye. Just try it. 
Because is that what that means? That, that if you're blessed because God gave you everything, and if you don't have everything you think you need, are you cursed? Is that what the whole blessing thing is? If God gives us everything that we think we need, haven't we just used him but not necessarily loved him? Wouldn't we just be a bunch of spoiled children, unloving, standing around at a cosmic vending machine? So Jesus goes and surprises his friends, Mary and Martha. And so he, he hangs out at their place. And you know the story, if you've been in, in reading the, the Gospels, you know that Martha runs around fixing up everything in hopes that it will all be right and Jesus will feel right at home because if that happens, then blessed. And Mary is, is, is seated at Jesus' feet. Martha is trying to get everything ready so Jesus feels at home, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet so she can discover where home is. And listen to what Jesus says. Luke 10, verse 41, But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered, and it will not be taken from her. No, no, you've got to catch this. This is God. This is big G. Not the little G God you read in the scripture, but the big G. This is the creator of the universe. This is the one that people want to be with because there is this aura. There's this essence. There's this presence. It just attracts. And he's not hanging out at the moment with the crowds and listening to the accolades and looking for the work. Instead, he is in a one-to-one confrontation relationship with this woman. And that woman, by being there with him, has an understanding of what the kingdom of God is and how it affects her. It is not, listen to me, it is not with the big event that God becomes a living reality. So here's the truth. Jesus said, for God so loved the world, if you know it, say with me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have an everlasting life. Okay, he tells him that, and then he follows up with this. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. You guys can put it back up, thanks. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. See, we, we give you the, first, the God so loved the world. Hey, it's God, God so loving. It's so great. And you never do anything wrong to harm us. And it is so wonderful. Kumbaya, my Lord. Kumbaya. We don't get to this part. You've got to believe or you're condemned. to go, no, no, no. That would spoil the party. So it boils down to this. It's not the big event. It's the believing. See, to do that, you're not going to be able to climb up a staircase of logic and get to the top and go, God, there you are. It's not going to happen. And you can't go miracle plus miracle plus miracle. Ta-da, God. You won't be able to do that. It won't happen. I'm not telling you to... to check out your brain and just leave it behind. I'm telling you to take that brain and immerse it in the facts. So I've studied the scriptures. I've studied the history of the scriptures. I've studied where they've come from. And and we've gone through that. And I've come to the conclusion, this stuff is real. 
I've talked to people who have walked with Jesus for years and I've heard their stories and I've heard the stories of how God took care of them and I say, this is real. And on top of that, there's this thing that happens inside of me, in my spirit, that when I'm sensing that God is close by and doing the things He said, if you do these things, you'll sense my presence. I say, this is real. I've got history and I've got scripture and I've got a presence. Because the deal is this. You will never decide whether God is real by the facts. You're going to have to take a leap of faith. And faith decisions are not risk-free. About 13 years ago, Pam and I and two friends went up to Toronto, went to see the musical Phantom of the Opera. We stayed in a hotel. At about 2 or 3 in the morning, the fire alarm went off in this big hotel. We first thought it was some kind of other alarm. We couldn't figure out what was going on. Woke us out of a dead sleep. And then this, this voice comes out of the, of the speaker in the room. Did I even know there was a speaker there? And this woman says, we do have a reported fire on the 12th floor. So we're asking for those in, in, on, hall, or on uh, levels 13, 12, and 11 to evacuate. We're on 14. I looked at her and said, hey, fire moves up. I'm not hanging around here. So, so we, we throw on clothes and the hair is just, you know, the, the hair is not where it's supposed to be. And it's just, it's just disheveled and, and you, you got the greasy, sleepy stuff and the drools down the side. And, and, but you don't have time to, to, well, Pam wants to and I yank her out of the room. But you don't have time to, to just clean up, take a shower. So you just throw it on whatever clothes you can. And we're, we're going out the door. We knock on the door of our friends. She comes to the door and she says, ah, he wants to sleep. So we say, all right, have a nice barbecue, and we head. We head to the staircase. We start down the staircase, get about two floors down, and we hit this traffic of people going down the steps. And they're all ugly as we are. Just all sorts of clothing. And we're all embarrassed how we look, but we want to make it down, and we're waiting for smoke. We get halfway down, and the speaker, lady on the speaker says, we have determined that it is a false alarm. Please return to your rooms. Sorry if this has been an inconvenience. So there's a risk. We had the risk of, will we look stupid? Yes. He had the risk, what if it had been real? We are making faith decisions and each of them are a risk. The mathematician Blaise Pascal said this, If Christianity is false, you've lost nothing. But if it's true, you've lost all eternity. Look, one way or the other, you're going to make a decision. God is or God isn't, but you're going to decide. And you're not going to believe me in the same way that you'd believe me if I called you Thursday night and said, look outside, it's snowing. You wouldn't even have to look. You'd say, it's eerie. It could be April, it's eerie. It could be March, it's eerie. It could be August, And so you look out there and there's snow. That's easy to determine. But this recognition of God in flesh, Jesus Christ, comes not by the facts, although you get them, but it comes down to this one thing. And Paul the Apostle said it this way. He said, there is a calling. There is this thing that God does. He calls. 
He calls your heart, and somehow you hear it here. He pursues you. He comes after you. Will you hear me right now that this God of the universe is pursuing you? That's the big event. The kingdom of God has come. God has been pursuing you. And God is calling to you. And in his call, he says, I will forgive you for everything, all the poor choices we've been talking about for weeks that create such pain between us and others and God. He said, I've cleaned that up for you by dying on the cross and paying for your sins. And then not just staying in that grave, but because I'm God, I now have authority to rise above that and to bring justice. Because the world cries justice. To bring justice to every broken and hurting person. See, the question is not, is God big enough? The question is this, is he small enough? You see, he's not going to do a Mount Sinai for you. He's probably not going to do that. He's not going to have this big exploding mountain thing going on because that stuff scares us and drives us away. But he's going to do a cross thing for you. Because you see, that cross thing is small enough for us to believe. It's small enough for us to understand how much he loves us. It's small enough for us so that we can trust him. What do you believe?
That's how it works. It's not in masses. It's not in immensity. It's your creator coming for you. To love you. To teach you. To heal you. To forgive you. To guide you. That's the way he's always been and always will be. So some of you today have heard his call. And you were just waiting for all the facts to line up. You were waiting for, for your intellect to say, okay, he's real. There's a lot of facts that say that. But it's his call that will confirm it. He's pursued you and he's called you and he wants to bring you home. And all you've got to do is say, I want to come home. You've got to be like Mary. You just say, I'm going to go sit at your feet. I don't know what all that means, but that's the stuff that lasts forever. Miracles come and go. Big events are here and they're gone. But that one who's pursued you, that lasts forever. That's why we put our faith in him. So before we go this morning, I want to make sure that you have ample opportunity to express your faith in him. To simply say, Jesus, I don't understand at all. And I'm going to tell you this, that when you connect with Jesus, you begin to understand him more. And the more time you spend with him, the more you understand him. And this morning, you may just need to say, I want to put my faith in you. And where that leads me, I want to go. So in just a moment, I'm going to have you stand. And we're, we're family here. We're community. And we do this all the time. I'm going to invite you just to turn to the people around you and say to them, would you like to come home to Jesus? Would you like to put your faith in him? And as they ask you, say yeah. And then I'm going to have that person who's invited you and you to come and stand here because it's a step of faith. And we're going to pray together. I'm not going to embarrass you or single you out. But it's a step of faith to confirm what you're feeling in here that God is calling you. So a moment I'm going to have you stand. I'm, going to, I'm just going to warn you, don't anybody break for those doors. Because I don't want you to disrupt what God's doing for people. So I'll give you time to get out of here. But I, I want you focused on the moment. So whether you're on the main floor, the galleries, or the lobby, or the balcony, you just talk to the people around you. say, I don't know them. Well, that's okay. You get to ask them the most incredible question. So now will you stand and turn to the folks around you and say, would you like to come home to Jesus? You may have asked him before. Ask him again. It's a new day. And as they say yes, you just come join me right here. If you're in the balcony, just come down these gallery steps. Join me here. That's it. That's great.